Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I bid everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving... He who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the word of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. It's hard to believe that in just a couple of weeks that Julie Andrews will turn 88 years old. She is still beautiful, elegant, going strong. But you know, whenever you say that name, Julie Andrews, it conjures one thing up to me, and that's Maria. Standing on the top of a mountain, spinning around, singing, the hills are alive. That was the musical that came out in 1965, Sound of Music. And it truly cemented her very much as as royalty in Hollywood. She'd come a long way. She didn't start off as royalty. She was born in 1935 in Essex, England, Sussex, England. And it turned out that she was a part of a very poor family. Her mother had married a man named Ted Wells. The marriage didn't go very well. It was in 1939, as the war started, they got divorced. Julie was only four years old, but she would grow up really through the war, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, going through the war. 
And she talked about very much how in her autobiography, this was the black period in her life. She remembers very clearly the nights that got so dark and the sirens and the dropping of bombs and people dying and people being hungry. They were hungry and thirsty and, and it really was so hard to be frightened all the time. They made it through the war. She was 10 years old. Her mother had remarried um, a Ted Andrews and Julie took his name. And that's how she became an Andrews. Her mom and dad now were involved in vaudeville and they loved acting, singing. And so they had a, uh, their own show that they had. They would go out and start performing around England. And then they started letting Julie be a part of the act. And during the act, they would have her come forward up onto stage, be just kind of, it was a part that was all set up. She would come out and she would start to sing. And when she would start to sing, whoa, mouths fell open. This voice was incredible. Four octaves, a kid 10, 11, 12 years old. I mean, she brought the house down. She became so popular. People wanted more and more of Julie and they began traveling and they were giving her bigger parts of the show. I mean, she was the draw. People wanted to hear. By the time she was 13 years old, she was requested to sing for the Queen of England, Elizabeth II. No, she was gaining a name for herself. By the time she was 14, she was starting to sign some contracts, make some money. In her autobiography, she said she will never forget the day. She was 14. She was riding on the train with her mom. And the marriage was struggling. The second marriage was struggling. Whenever Ted would drink too much, he sometimes would become a violent temper, become very violent. And it was hard. Financially, they were always struggling. Always had been, they were still struggling financially. And it just finally had piled up on her mother's shoulders. And so her mother started to cry. And then she just started to weep. And she was crying so hard that Julie said, I always remember getting up and go over and sitting beside her. And she put her arm around her and, and she just said, it's, it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'll be here for you. I will take care of you. She said, 14 years old, I remember the day I went from childhood to caregiver. And that's how she saw her responsibility. How am I going to take care of the family? So she began working harder, trying to make those connections, getting out to sing. Her career began to grow. Before long, she was having parts on West End in London. And when she was only 18 years old, she got an invitation to come to the United States to go to Broadway and to audition. And she got the part. She got the lead in the musical, The Boyfriend. That ran for one year on Broadway. It was a great success. And now she was a name and they had an audition for another musical. And she tried out for Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. And she got the part. It was really one of those big breaks, the turning points in her career. She would play Eliza now for the next several years on Broadway, getting all kinds of recognition and awards. So successful. She would leave that then and go to singing for... Um, 
Queen Guinevere and Camelot. She would do that for a while. And then Walt Disney would come calling and asking her to be a flying nanny. And she did Mary Poppins. And again, to great success. And immediately following on the heels of Mary Poppins, she was suddenly doing Sound of Music. By the time she was 30 years old, Sound of Music was coming out. She had now had three hit Broadway productions, musicals, two movies. I mean, her world had changed so quickly. And yet those who knew her said, Julie never got a big head. She never got a big head. She kept herself grounded. She knew who she was. She was concerned about making money because she was concerned about taking care of her mother and her father and her family. To remember who you are, to stay grounded, to remember your responsibility. You know, I really believe that's what Paul was talking about in our scripture lesson this morning when he was writing to the people of Rome. Now, this letter of Paul's is different from so many of his letters. You know, when he was writing to the people of Philippi or the Thessalonians or the Corinthians, Paul was writing to a church that he had started. He was writing to people who had not been Christians. They came to the church and became Christians. And we know that much of the early church was of the lower socioeconomic class. Not everybody but a majority were. But when he was writing to the church in Rome, it was very different. Paul didn't start the church in Rome. The church in Rome was the church. It's in Rome, the seat of power. And so now you're talking about people who are a part of the church. They're, they're Christian already, and they are people of power. And even the Christians, well, yes, you have the poor and the powerless, but you also had a strong middle class. And you had people who were wealthy and powerful who were all a part of the church. And so after Paul talks about all this different theology, he comes to the end of his letter and writes very practical advice and writes to the people of Rome and says, let your love be genuine. Hold on to what is good. Hate what is evil. Outdo one another in showing brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not think more highly of yourself than you should think. Think soberly about yourself. That's a whole different attitude and spirit. Because Paul believed that we as a family of faith can be one family of faith no matter how different we are. That it doesn't matter whether you are the wealthy and the powerful or whether you are the poor and the powerless. We can be one as a family of Christ. How? Jesus said clearly, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you will love God, and if you feel loved by God, then you will be transformed. Paul said it will transform your spirit so that you look at one another differently. You look at yourself differently. You can love your neighbor as yourself. 
we can be one as a family. That's what I'm going to want us to think about this morning as we continue on with this sermon series, St. Luke's on Broadway. You know, we've had a good time looking at a variety of different kinds of musicals. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at a musical that is on Broadway right now, new, called Six, about Henry VIII and his six wives. Today, we're going to go way back for 67 years, and we're going to wind up looking at one of the all-time greats, My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady was originally written as a play called Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw wrote the play Pygmalion in 1912. He got it produced as a play in 1913 in Vienna and then Berlin. And in 1914, it got produced as a play in West End and Broadway. So Pygmalion was actually on Broadway as a play in 1914. It turned out that it was very successful both times, and it would then get made into a movie in 1938. Now, George Bernard Shaw, the fascinating thing is he received a Nobel Peace Prize for literature for this book, and he would receive an Academy Award when it was made into a movie. I don't know many people getting a Nobel Peace Prize and an Academy Award. Now, it was very successful. It was speaking to people around the world because it was dis discussing this issue of a class system so prevalent in the 1900s, the poor, the middle class, the upper class, the rich, and then royalty. We looked down on each other and then did not mix and somehow it was a struggle in the world and we begin to understand that this is not a healthy or healthy thing. And George Bernard Shaw helped us to start calling that out and us trying to look at that. Well, he died in 1950. He was like 94 years old. And after he died, it was Rodgers and Hammerstein who came along and said, let's make this into a musical. And so they worked on it for a year and they finally said, just, just did it in there. We can't do it. They set it aside, and it was Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe who then picked it up, and they started working on it, and they made it happen. They wrote the music. They had the words. They took the story. And in 1956, the curtain went up on My Fair Lady, and it was a huge hit on Broadway. They were down the street trying to get tickets. Everyone wanted to go to My Fair Lady in 1956. It would win all kinds of Tony Awards. It would run for six years. At that time, it was the longest running play in Broadway history. It would play for 2,717 performances. Now, it was incredibly successful. It would close after six years, as I said, and when it did, well, it was Jack Warner who bought the rights to turn it into a movie. And so Jack Warner paid five and a half million for the rights. No one had ever paid that much money for a musical to turn it into a movie. The budget for doing it would be 17 million, which again was astronomical. But he did turn it into a movie that came out in 1964. And it had uh, 12 Academy Award nominations. It was huge. An incredible success 
adjusted for inflation, it is still the 56th largest box office movie of all times. My Fair Lady, written in 1912 and going and still going to this day. Why? You may remember the story. It may have been a while since you've seen My Fair Lady. Do you remember the story? It was about Eliza Doolittle, a young woman who was a part of the low class there in London. She basically lived on the streets, poorly dressed, dirty, strong accent. She would murder the king's English. She liked to sell flowers. Her sole dream was to work in a flower shop selling flowers. That's as high as she could lift her sights to dream. If I could just sell flowers in a flower shop. That was her hopes. That was her dreams. Then you had Professor Henry Higgins. He and a friend made a bet and said, I wonder if we could take one of these street snipes and we could make them royalty. If we could teach them and dress them and show them how to have all these courtesies and manners, I wonder if we could pass them off as a blue blood. And so that becomes the bet to see if they could do that. And Eliza is the one who's chosen to see, could we transform her into something different, something more like royalty? Now, Henry Higgins, what was he like? Handsome, wealthy, powerful, all the trappings of success. But if you looked a little deeper, what you saw really was he was selfish, self-centered, egotistical, critical, mean, rude. Those were the nice things that we could say about him. What was Henry Higgins like? Well, all you have to do is go back and look at the songs that were written for him, and he will sing the songs and tell you what he's like. He sings, why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so honest and thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair, who, when you win, will always give your back a pat. Why can't a woman be like that? Why does everyone do what the others do? Can't a woman learn to use her head? Why do they do everything their mothers do? Why don't they grow up and, well, be like their fathers instead? Why can't a woman take after a man? Why can't a woman be like me? Now that's Henry Higgins for you right there. I just wish all women would think like I think. I wish they'd enjoy doing what I enjoy doing. I wish they'd be like me. He would sing another song. Well, after all, Pickering, I am an ordinary man who desires nothing more than an ordinary chance to live exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants. The average man am I of no eccentric whim who likes to live his life free of strife, doing whatever he thinks is best for him. What is Henry Higgins? Henry Higgins is the center of the universe. I wish everybody would think like me. I wish everybody would act like I want them to act. That's all that I want, to be able to do whatever it is I want to do. 
Paul would say, let love be genuine. Do not think more highly of yourself than you want to think. Think with sober judgment about who you are. Let your love be genuine. Hold on fast to what is good. Hate what is evil. Outdo one another in showing brotherly love. Paul would try to ask the early church, can you have your spirit transformed by a love for Christ and being loved by Christ so that we who all are different can treat one another in such a way that we are one family of faith? That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I really want to share with you just three ideas. First of all, Paul said, I bid everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's the issue of don't put yourself in the center of the universe where it all has to revolve around you. Rex Harrison played the part of Henry Higgins. He was an incredible actor. Henry, um, Rex Harrison had played the part of King Henry VIII and that's where he earned his first um, Tony Award for Best Actor. He then played Henry Higgins and he won another Tony Award for Best Actor. He then would play Henry Higgins in the movie, My Fair Lady, and he would win his first Academy Award for Best Actor. He was phenomenal at playing this role and this kind of a spirit and that's because this was really typecasting. <laughs> it was said that Rex Harrison was King Henry VIII and Henry Higgins on steroids. <laughs> it turned out that he really did seem to feel like he was the center of the universe. His biographer, I want to read you what his biographer said. Rex Harrison was abusive philandering, self-serving, gluttonous, egomaniac, with a blind indifference to the thoughts and feelings of others. Nobody escaped his vile temper or scathing tongue, not even his fans. That's how he treated other people, truly, the center of the universe. I just want to do what I want to. I wish you could think like me. I wish you would be like me. It was another biographer who said, Rex Harrison and Henry VIII had a lot in common. They were both tyrannical, both got through six wives, and both enjoyed fine dining. Rex Harrison was married six times. Two of his wives committed suicide. He was rather hard on the ego and self-esteem. The stories of his dining are legendary. It was said that if everything went his way, he could be quite charming and delightful. But if they didn't, one night he went out to dinner in New York. And when he went out to dinner in New York, he, he got served a, a plate of fish and he didn't feel like it was as fresh as it should be. And so he took that plate of fish and he threw it and hit the mater d' with the fish in the plate. The maitre d' came over and balled up his fist and cold cocked him and knocked him out of his chair onto the floor, leaving him stunned. 
Lily Palmer, who was his second wife, said, you know, that night was one of the highlights of our marriage. <laughs> he died when he was 82 years old. A few people got together and said, where do you think we ought to hold the funeral? And someone suggested, I think a phone booth. <laughs> that ought to hold all the friends who will want to come. Now, before you and I throw Rex Harrison under the bus, just be honest with yourself. Haven't you any time recently thought, why doesn't everybody think the way I do? I sure wish people would act the way I want them to act. Isn't it easy to put yourself in the center of the universe? Please think like I think. Please do the things I want you to do. It was Paul who was trying to say, I don't care whether you're the powerful and the wealthy or whether you are the powerless and the poor. We can change the way we look at one another and treat one another. If we are focused on Christ, it will transform the way we look and treat each other. Secondly, Paul said, each should think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned to him. So you had those who were very egotistical. I want the world to be like what I want it to be. I want you to think like I think and revolve around me. But then you also had those who would start to feel like, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough for God to use me to make a difference in the world. Have you ever thought about yourself and wondered, does it matter what I think? Does it matter what I do? Think with sober judgment about the faith that has been given to you rather than we're not egotistical, but we have such self-doubt. I have found that God will believe more in you than you probably believe in yourself. That God sees more potential in you than you see in yourself. When Julie Andrews got through with her role um, playing Eliza Doolittle, she went to Camelot. She really was hoping when she heard that Jack Warner was going to wind up doing My Fair Lady that she would get that part. And so she really was hoping Jack Warner, though, whenever he bought the rights, he was concerned, I've got to make this go. Five and a half million to get the rights to do it. 17 million to produce this. We need to make this go. I can't take a chance. So he went to Clark Gable and asked if he would be Henry Higgins. And Clark Gable said, absolutely not. You need to turn to Rex Harrison, which he did. And then he decided he wanted to go to Audrey Hepburn to wind up being Eliza. He turned to Audrey Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn because she had already won several Academy Awards. A Roman Holiday, Breakfast at Tiffany's. She had never made a movie that had lost money. But when he went to Audrey Hepburn and said, would you take this role? She said, I really think you need to give it to Julie Andrews. And he said, no. 
I have to have someone that I know will be a draw at the box office. And so he talked Audrey Hepburn into taking on the role. So many people were really hurt for um, Julie Andrews. They felt that was her role. She should have had that opportunity, but she didn't get it. Well, when she was playing Queen Guinevere in Camelot, Walt Disney had come to New York and saw her singing in Camelot. And that's when he went to her and said, I want you to play a flying nanny. I want you to be Mary Poppins. And Julie Andrews said, well, I want to wait to see if I get this role. And Walt Disney said, I'll wait. So when she didn't get the part, Walt Disney was right there. And he said, would you like to do Mary Poppins? And she said, yes. So she went and made Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins came out in 1964. My Fair Lady came out in 1964. Both movies, head to head, the same year coming out. My Fair Lady would garner 12 Academy Award nominations. Mary Poppins would garner 13 Academy Award nominations. 12, I mean, these were the two movies that just dominated all the excitement that year for the Academy Awards. And when it came to the Academy Awards, best actress, Julie Andrews. Her very first movie and she wins the Academy Award for Best Actress. I love the fact she also won the Golden Globe. And when she did win, she came up to make her speech and to give thanks to so many different people. And I, I want to read you what she said. And finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and made all this possible in the first place. Mr. Jack Warner. I'll let you think about that one for a second. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. He made a wonderful movie and he made all this possible. And I just really want to thank Jack for not choosing me so I could go play Mary Poppins and win the Academy Award. Years later, Julie would be interviewed and they asked her, so when you won... I mean, there was so much justice in that. And it was so exciting. Where did you put your Oscar? I put it in the attic. I couldn't have it out on the mantle. I was too intimidated and I wondered, am I really good enough? It made me feel so uncomfortable to see it. I had to live into it for a number of years before I could finally bring it down from the attic and put it on the mantle to see. No matter how good you may be, how successful, we still wonder, am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Am I loved? Paul was trying to say to the early church, doesn't matter if you're the wealthy and the powerful or you are the poor and the powerless. We are one in Christ, valued by God. And when you know what it means to be loved by God and you love God, it will transform your spirit in the way you see one another and treat each other. We can be one family of faith. And so third, Paul would say, outdo one another in showing honor. 
Let your love be genuine. Hold fast to what is good. Hate what is evil. Show brotherly love to one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. I like that. For us to be able to look around and it's no longer just about me. What do I want? We look around and I'm no longer suddenly feeling bad about me and insecure. The issue is can I outdo one another in showing love? Showing honor to one another. Taking a moment to express that. Henry Higgins struggled with that. You know the whole story, trying to see if you could take Eliza and you could transform her into something new. The night came when they took her to the ball. And they took her to the ball and there they pulled it off. She looked like royalty. She knew how to speak. She had the etiquette. She had the clothes. The people there thought that she was a Hungarian blue blood. And she danced with a prince. And it was so much fun to be treated with respect, to be somewhere that is beautiful and clean and lovely. And she kept singing, I could have danced all night. Such joy in having that moment. I could have danced all night. When they came home from the ball, Henry Higgins, he was going, I did it. I did it. I changed her. I pulled it off. Nobody knew. Everybody thought she was a Hungarian blue blood. I did it. And never once did he say, well done, Eliza. Proud of you. Really good. Well done. It's all about me. Look what I did. To forget to express honor, love, appreciation. You know, I told you about Audrey Hepburn and how when she got the part, the interesting thing was she wasn't the singer of Julie Andrews. She worked very hard to learn the music. She wanted to do it really well. And so they let her cut all the songs. And behind the scenes, they never had any intention of using her music. From the very beginning, they had already made a contract with Marnie Nixon to dub over all of the singing of Audrey Hepburn, and Marnie Nixon would actually sing all the songs, and, uh, and Hepburn would not be getting, would not be singing any of them. Didn't know that till after the show was done. At the same time, there was a man named Jeremy Brett. Jeremy Brett played Freddie, a blue blood, and there's that scene in the show when Freddie shows up to sing to Eliza. And it's on the street where your house is, where you live. It's obviously lovely and it's going to be beautiful. And he's now professing his love for her and she's saying how much she loves him. It's this beautiful love song for the, each other. And what he didn't know was they were going to dub over him as well. And it wasn't until the movie came out that both of them discovered that song that they'd been singing to one, both had been dubbed over. And it was Jeremy who said, you know, it's really disappointing when you discover that you've lost your voice. And I'm sure that is disappointing. But I can tell you it's even more disappointing when you fail to use your voice to share your love. When you fail to seize the moment to use the voice you have 
to outdo showing honor, to outdo showing love. You'll regret that because it's when you and I start showing that love that it does something to our spirit. For Henry Higgins, it happened because Eliza comes in and says, I don't need this anymore. She had been transformed. I know who I am. I don't need this anymore. And so she's going to leave. And it's then that Henry Higgins goes, wait a minute, I, I've grown accustomed to your face. The truth of the matter is he had come to appreciate her, to care about her. And it's only as he begins to express that, that Henry Higgins begins to be transformed. It's when you and I express it, we begin to be transformed. It's so fascinating how the story came about for the song because it was Alan J. Lerner who was the lyricist trying to write this. And they were just a week or two before they were going to start rehearsals and they didn't have a closing song. They, they didn't have the love song that they needed to have, a, a love song so that Henry Higgins could be singing something to Eliza. And so he's working on it. He's at home and he's struggling and struggling. And finally he says to his wife, I just can't do it. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I can't do it. And she said, let me get you a cup of tea. And she went away up to the kitchen to prepare a cup of tea. And when she came back, she had taken the time to put it in this beautiful teapot, two beautiful cups on a silver tray. And she came down the steps and he just watched her come down the steps. And she came and she sat down this tray and he said, you know, you really are a beautiful girl. And she said, what do you want? <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. I mean, you really are a, a beautiful girl. You know, we, we go to bed together. We wake up together. We work all day together. And I think sometimes I take you for granted. You know, I, I have forgotten how I, I've become accustomed to your face. Don't say a word. Don't say a word. He jumped up, ran over to the desk, got out his yellow pad and began to write down the verses. He had it. The, it had come. Becoming, I'd become accustomed to your face to the point that I forgot to use the voice I have to express the love that I feel. Paul was trying to write to the church in Rome to say, doesn't matter if you're the powerful or the powerless, the wealthy or the poor, we are one family of faith. And if we will focus on Christ, it'll change the way we look at one another. We will be transformed. So let your love be genuine. Hold on to what is good. Hate what is evil. Show brotherly love to one another. Outdo one another in showing honor and expressing your love. And if you do that, we'll be a family of faith. And I guess you will want to dance all night. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.